0: Okay, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15, so just two chapters of this incredible account to to go to conclude it. (coughs) Let's just pray, shall we, as we come humbly before God's Word. Well, Father, we do just ask now that you speak to us through your Word. Um, Father, we know that the things that are recorded here were not just for the benefit of the people. Some 2,000 years ago, the Lord have been a blessing to people down through the ages and Lord are uh, on these pages for us this morning to encourage us, to edify us, the Lord to remind us of these incredible truths, Lord that our faith is built upon and so Father just give us ears to hear Lord this morning we pray, give us eyes to see spiritually, Lord not as the natural man sees but Lord to discern the things that are spiritual. Lord, help us to grow together this morning as a fellowship, as a body of believers, in knowledge and in grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've been going through this account a number of times. We've mentioned again that this is Mark's um, record of the things that he seemingly heard from Peter. Um, Peter was there through all of this. Mark may well have seen some of these events firsthand. Um, and Mark gets the opportunity, and I think some scholars have different views and ideas, but um, from what we understand from Scripture, uh, it may well be that while Mark was with Peter in Babylon, when they'd gone to visit the dispersed Jews, um, that Peter seems to take Mark under his wing. And I think that would have been after the time that um, Mark uh, has separated from Paul and Barnabas, and gone off and spent this time with Peter, and Peter really takes him in. And Peter, of course, one of the, the big names for the early church, you know, one of the leaders of the early church. And for Mark to have this opportunity of sitting with Peter to discuss and to find out. And as I said, you know, right at the start of this, this study, you can imagine Mark sitting there and hearing Peter say things. And Mark just, well, one minute, let me just get a notepad and, and start scribbling these things down. You know, and that is what I believe we have here as Mark's Gospel. Mark just gives us the highlights, just the key things that really stuck out to him that he wanted to share with people and what an impact this Gospel has had. Now... We've come to this place, we're looking at this last week, Passion Week as we typically call it, um, the last week that Jesus spent with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection, and we've said already a number of times that all of this was just a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, really fulfilling the details of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of first fruits, which we'll be getting to in our study. So we've come... As far now as the day of the crucifixion, which was on the Thursday of the week. I know traditionally people talk about the Friday and Good Friday and so on. Um, there is no way that fits the model. Um, not least for the fact that Jesus himself and Paul make reference to him being the Passover. Um, we know, of course, that Paul makes reference to Jesus being uh, the first fruits. Tying it in with these celebrations and these feasts, uh, and there's no other way it works uh, unless you have the details laid out as we have here. And there are about seven or eight key things that pinpoint the resurrection, uh, sorry, the crucifixion as occurring on the Thursday. And of course, that way as well, we have no problem with the three days, three nights because we have Thursday night as the first evening. Okay, the, seth- the Friday night is the second evening or second night, and then the Saturday night is our third night. And then in terms of the days, the first day will be the Friday, the second day is the Saturday, and then we know that Jesus rises on the third day. That's very, very simple. Um, so there is no problem. We don't have to try and bend or distort things. Uh, Jesus, as he said, would rise on the third day, he'd be in the ground three days, three nights, uh, exactly as uh, we have laid out. So no, dif- no, no difficulty with any of this if you put the details together. There are a lot of details to put together. So let's jump into the text now, Mark chapter 15, and we'll pick up at verse 1, and straight away... In the morning. Now just to give you the background, we've seen Jesus spend that evening with the disciples at the Last Supper. Celebration of the Passover, he reveals to them that it was all about him all along. Um, Drinks these cups, the three cups, not drinking of the fourth cup. They then go out to Gethsemane. Jesus, in John's Gospel, we have that wonderful account where Jesus prays for his disciples. They get to Gethsemane, Jesus there is praying and sweats these drops of blood, this hematidrosis, uh, this medical condition which under great duress causes you to sweat blood. Uh, Luke is the one that tells us really about this. Jesus, uh, under such anguish of heart and soul, not because of what the Romans were going to do. That was terrible enough. And that would be enough to probably put any of us in that position. But Jesus knew the, the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath was about to be poured on him all of the crime, all of the sin, all of the wickedness of humanity. And that was what Jesus was saying. If there is any other way, three times Jesus prays that prayer. And of course there is no other way. And Jesus every time says, yet your will be done. Seeking to do the will of his Father. That was why Jesus came to do the will of his Father and giving such a great pattern and a model for our lives also. That if we are to lay our lives down, to take up our cross and follow him, It's not about our will, our desires, our plans, our dreams, our hopes of the future. It's what he wants. And of course God will always in our lives want that which is best for us in terms of an eternal perspective. Not just necessarily the way we view things here and now. So, Straight away in the morning, the guards had come, arrested Jesus. They had a number of trials already um, between, with the, the Jews, which we looked at last week. These were all illegal. They should never have taken place. But this was their one opportunity. Jesus, Judas had kind of forced their hand because Jesus had kind of forced Judas's hand by saying, I know that somebody's going to betray me. There's one of you in this room. So Judas has to go now and make good on this promise he's made to the Jewish leadership. So in the morning, after spending this night being interrogated and beaten and so on, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes. Now they've already made a decision. They already know what they want to do. The problem is, at this point, the Jewish authorities don't have the power or the authority themselves to sentence Jesus to death. They need Rome to do that. That power had been taken away from Israel in round about 6 AD. The scepter had departed from Judah. That power of, of the right to pronounce capital punishment. And that had caused at the time the rabbis to, to weep, to wail and to cry that even the Torah itself had been broken. Because if you remember that prophecy way back in Genesis, that Jacob prays over Judah, that the scepter shall not part from Judah until Shiloh come, a reference to the Messiah. And of course, for the Jews in 6 AD, the leadership, as far as they're aware, the Messiah had not yet come. What they didn't realize was that up north in Nazareth, in the carpenter's shop, there was a young boy growing up who was the Messiah. And now they're in this position, they don't have this right to pronounce a death sentence. And so we're told that the elders the scribes, the whole council got together for this consultation. And so they decide what we have to do here is go to Rome. We have to go to Pilate. So they bound Jesus and they carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, Pilate probably was looking forward to a a nice day off. This was now going to be a feast day. It's the first of the seven days of unleavened bread, and you know, although the Jews, so the Romans weren't particularly bothered about the Jewish feasts. You know, everybody likes a break, don't they? Everybody likes a little bit of time when you can stop working, and so naturally, the the atmosphere in Israel would have been one of joy, celebration, spending time with your families, and so on. So Pilate was looking forward to this break, a little bit of a, a respite from the usual uh, routine, and so on. Uh, and suddenly he gets kind of rudely awakened as these Jews arrive with this individual. Uh, and really he's not that interested and yet he has to now take this uh, seriously. So they delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, "Art thou the king of the Jews? Because this is the accusation that's now being leveled and being made. And he answering said unto him, thou sayest it. In other words, that's what you said. That's what the Jewish leadership has said. It's what a number of the people have said. At this point, it wasn't something Jesus himself had said. It had been prophesied of him. It had been prophesied very clearly that the king would come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It had been prophesied the very day. But Jesus at this point had not claimed the kingdom. He would not claimed to be the king at this time because Jesus knew that he was there the first time to pay for our sin. The second time Jesus comes, no question, he comes riding on a white horse. He comes with the armies of heaven. He'll come to establish his kingdom. He'll come to fulfill all of those prophecies that we've already been speaking about over recent weeks. Verse 3 carries on, And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Why did Jesus answer nothing? Well, because he was standing in our place. He was there, effectively, as the accused. Although he'd done nothing wrong, he was there in our place. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Ashes thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. And it's incredible, because every one of us has this inbuilt sense of justice, don't we? You know, you've all been in situations when somebody does something wrong and it really annoys you. And it could be something as simple as you're driving in the car and somebody cuts you up or somebody in front didn't indicate before they turn left. And we have this sense of justice and it really winds us up. It really frustrates us. Let alone when somebody accuses you of something you know is not true. You know, and if you've been in that kind of situation, I'm sure at times you have. It's really hard. You kind of want to just ignore it and say it doesn't matter, and yet at the same time, you, you really want to vindicate yourself and clear your name. And so it's really, really unusual to have someone in this position. Pilate just can't get his head around it. that They're saying all sorts of things, making all these accusations against Jesus, and he's just standing there. And Jesus, yet answered nothing, we're told, so that Pilate marveled. I mean, just on a human level, it's staggering that anybody could just remain calm and not speak. And yet, back in Isaiah 53, which is a wonderful commentary on all of these, these events, this situation, written some 700 years before the time, we read this, that all oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet, he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb; so he opened not his mouth. Again, Jesus recognizing that the accusations that were being made were accusations really that should have been and could have been made about us, about being deceitful, about being liars, about making false claims. All of those things, they fall on us. But Jesus was standing there in our place. I like this comment from J. Vernon McGee. He said, Pilate is out on a limb and wants to get off. He would like to help Jesus. He's inside the court alone with Jesus. The Jews are waiting outside because of their scruples about contaminating themselves. They didn't want to enter a Gentile place, as it were, during the Passover. Pilate would be happy if Jesus would simply say, he's not a king. And that would get Pilate off the hook. Who is on trial, Pilate or Jesus? Verse 6 carries on, it says, Now at that feast he, is Pilate, released unto them one prisoner whomsoever that they desired. So this was customary at this time of year, as kind of an act of clemency, goodwill, the pilot would uh, typically allow one of the prisoners that he had to be set free. And we told and there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now whatever this guy's political views and position, whatever his intentions were, whether they were good, whether they were bad He still murdered people. He was rightly in prison. And, you know, no doubt he had a a passion for the Jewish nation, but how much of that really was about seeing Israel liberated from Rome, how much of it was for his own ends, we we don't know any of those things. But we do find that this is a very interesting character, not least because of his name. The name means... And you probably can work this out a little bit if you know anything about Hebrew. Son of the father, Abba, is the name for father. Bar is typically the son of. Okay, um, we have a number of Bar or whatever's in in Scripture. Simon Bar Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, and so on. So the name means son of the father, and in this context, it really speaks of every one of us. And it's incredible that. Even this detail is in Scripture, but it's there because it really highlights that Jesus was standing there in our place. see, we are sons of our father, the devil. Now, we, we don't like to think of ourselves in that context. And of course, when Jesus levels this at the Jewish leadership, they hate it. But really, you see, right from the time of the fall, everybody that has been born has been born a sinner, a liar, blasphemer in heart and murder and adultery, all those kind of things that the law sets as a standard of holiness, of godliness. We've broken all of those things. But the incredible thing for you and I is that now we have been adopted. So we're now called the sons of God. We've been taken from that dysfunctional family family of the human race and we're brought into God's family and he's now our father and we are now legitimately his sons and again make no apology there's so much that's written uh, about the Bible and uh, so many translations that have come onto the scene um, gender neutral versions and so on so that we don't offend anybody Um, no the context here is the son had the position of the firstborn and whether you're male or female you are in that position. Don't change this to, to children of God because you undo the import of what it means. It means that you have the position of the firstborn, whether you're a male, whether you're a female, because in Christ there is neither male or female. You have become one of the sons of God, one of those who are considered as the firstborn. And that is an incredible privilege. Of course, Barabbas was guilty. Just as we were guilty, Christ was innocent. And this, of course, is that great exchange that Barabbas was standing there rightly for his crime. He should have been judged. He should have gone out and been crucified. Christ was innocent. He should have been let go free. And yet, this exchange takes place where Barabbas is set free. Completely forgiven for his crimes. And Christ goes and bears the sin of the world. So this little account we have of this individual just highlights and just speaks of this amazing exchange that takes place where he that knew no sin became sin for us. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them, releasing a prisoner. But Pilate answered them saying, "'Will you that I release unto you the king of the Jews?' I mean, Pilate really suggesting that, you know, why don't you let me release Jesus to you? So he, says he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. I and mean, Pilate wasn't deceived, but he knew that Jesus was not standing there because he'd done something wrong. He was standing there because the Jewish leadership saw him as a threat in a number of different ways, and those are things we've already talked about. But the chief priest moved the people. They started going around and stirring the people. They should rather release Barabbas unto them. was oh, such an illogical, illogical choice is being made, and yet the crowd willingly get whipped up into this, and Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will you that, uh, then, that I shall do unto him whom you call the King of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. It's such a, a dark, horrible moment for humanity and, of course, for Israel. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil has he done? Give me a reason why we should crucify this man. And they cried all the more exceedingly, Crucify him. You see, this was all about God's plan from the foundation of the world because we read that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This wasn't just an unfortunate set of circumstances. And I I remember Chuck Minister often used to talk about the cross. He said it wasn't a tragedy. It was a triumph. It was the reason Jesus had come. In, In our minds, we look at this as a horrible thing, and how could these people do this, and humanity... We're seeing that horrible side of humanity that's the result of sin. And those things are true. It is horrible. But this was God's intention. To make a way for people to be saved. And so Pilate, willing to contend the people, recognizing he's got a real political issue here because if he lets Jesus go, there's no telling what will happen. There could be riots. There could be all sorts of problems. He just can't allow himself to go down that road. And so, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Now, we could talk in detail about what that scourging entailed, but I'm sure most of you are familiar with how horrific it was. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium and they called together the whole band, all the Roman soldiers, and they clothed him with purple and a platy crown of thorns and put it about his head. You know, the, the thorns there seemingly symbolic of the curse on the earth. One of the results of the fall was that the earth would bring forth these thorns. And Jesus now becoming a curse for us and being placed upon a, a tree on the cross again. Cursed is he that hangs on a tree is what the law had said. Paul later makes reference to that. They put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews, just mocking him. How would these Roman soldiers feel when they stand before him one day? When they stand before him as the King of kings, not just the King of the Jews. You know, and it's that question of how the people in this world are going to respond. I mean, uh, so many times I've heard people make comments about what they're going to tell God when they get there. How they're going to set God right and tell him that actually this is how you should have done this or how you should have done this. And you talk about justice, well, and people are going make these silly statements. I'm going to have a word with the man upstairs. and You know, scripturally, when we find people come face to face with... The Lord, what do we see? We see them face down, as dead, unable to speak. If it's not for an angel who happens to be standing by you, puts his hand on the shoulder and says, okay, get up now, they'll probably stay there for eternity. But these people there at the time of the cross and throughout history have mocked Jesus. And it will carry on. It's just breathtaking. That people could be so foolish, and they smote him on the head with a reed, and they spit upon him, and bowing their knees worshipped him. Just, and when they mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed in, who passed by, coming out of the Country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. Now, of course, at this point, Mark and Peter and the disciples didn't necessarily know Alexander and Rufus, and probably they didn't know Simon of Cyrene at this point either. Later, we find that these individuals uh, come onto the scene. Alexander's mentioned in Acts 19.33 and in Rufus is spoken of by Paul in Romans 16.13. So seemingly this event had a profound effect on this man, Simon, and his children, so much so that they become believers and friends of the disciples and become disciples themselves. But Simon is compelled to come out and we read verse 32 and they bring him unto the place Golgotha which is being interpreted, notice the words, the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. Jesus wouldn't take anything to dull or to numb the pain. Jesus had to bear our sin in its entirety, in all its ugliness. Now, this place, of course, Golgotha, The place of the skull. And some of you, if you've been to Israel, you'd have gone there, and there's this outcrop of rock that you can see at the location. And you can see almost as if there's like two eyes and a nose. And people have suggested that this is why it's called the place of the skull, because in the rocks, it looks a little bit like that. Now, it's true right now, if you go there, that's what it looks like. But that's after a couple of thousand years. You know, did it look like that in the days of Jesus? Uh, Is that something that's happened since, a bit of erosion? You know, rocks moving, falling, whatever. I don't know. And to be honest, I'm not that bothered because I don't believe that this place was called that because of that particular outcrop of rock that you can see. First of all, just to highlight that this is the right location. We know that very clearly. You can look at the um, topology of this mountain range. It's the same mountain range that Abraham brought Isaac. It's the same place that Abraham would have offered up his son or would have... Offered had the Lord not have intervened because at that point remember Isaac going up to the mountain asked the question, "Where is the lamb?" And Abraham returns and says, "The Lord will provide himself the lamb. not will provide a lamb for himself. He will provide himself the lamb. And that's exactly what happens. And it takes 2,000 years to get there and it's actually John the Baptist that makes that declaration because you remember with Abraham and with Isaac, eventually it's a ram that is offered. That lamb is never actually offered at that time. Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh in the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Knowing that this is a place of great prophetic significance and something one day incredible is going to happen at this point. And of course John the Baptist when Jesus comes to see him in the beginning of his ministry, says, behold the lamb. For 2,000 years they've been waiting for that lamb from the time of Abraham, and then Jesus steps onto the scene, and and John says, this is the lamb. And so now Jesus at this very same spot is being offered up, another father offering up his son. And so we've got the topology, we know we have the um, area of Jerusalem, um, the city, the old city of Salem, Jerusalem, and then the, part of the, the higher part of that is where you've got this threshing floor of Ornan or Aruna, um, referred to by both names. Um, this place that David purchases for the temple to be built is where we have the Temple Mount today. But the, the ridge system carries on rising up to the peak, which is actually 777 metres above sea level. And we have the peak there. The Akedah, this is a place again where Isaac was offered at the place you and I know as Golgotha and Calvary. And, you know, just zooming in on this because you'll see why. You see again the Temple Mount area there at the threshing floor. Um, and then you've got the peak. Now, if you overlay that with a map of Jerusalem, you see exactly the same thing. Okay. You see where the, you can see obviously the dome of the rock there in that picture and the Temple Mount today. And right at the top where that arrow is pointing, there's a car park. There's a bus station there today. Um, and right next to that you have this outcrop of rock. Next to that, moving along, you have a garden tomb right next to this place. And if anybody's been to Israel, as you've been to, it's sometimes referred to as Gordon's Calvary, uh, referring to General Gordon who kind of discovered this place. Um, but there's no question geographically that this is the right location. Uh, and we can then overlay that, again, just so you've got the, you sort of, the, the topography... You've then got the actual um, image, satellite image. And if you overlay there a map, okay, underneath you've still got the satellite image. You overlay, overlay the map on top of that. And that's the same map as you probably got in the back of your Bibles. And it will show you the old city of Jerusalem and how it was. Um, and it will probably have a reference to Christ's tomb, a question mark there, because a lot of scholars have not been willing to say, yes, I think that's definitely the place. But it's very simple. If you just join all these pieces together... There is no question that we have the temple now, and then we have the wall of the city. You see the black line, the outer edge of the city. Uh, it's still there to this day, that, that outskirts. And then just outside the city itself is where you have Calvary. Why outside the city? Because that's exactly what Leviticus 4 demanded. Picking up verse 11, it says, And the skin of the bullock and his flesh with his head and with his legs and his inwards... And is done, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the woods. Notice the details here. With fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burned. It's speaking of these sacrifices that were to be offered under the Levitical system. But every one of those speaks of Christ in one way or another so that he was to be carried forth out of the camp and then burn him on the word exactly what happened Jesus the judgment of God consumes him on the cross outside of the city and Hebrews makes reference to this in Hebrews 13 for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest of sin are burnt without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffer without the gate. Right, the Hebrews making clear that Jesus was outside the city, that Golgotha, that Calvary was outside of the city. Now, one other thing here that's important. Back in Genesis, you're familiar with the whole account at the time of the fall, verse 14 of Genesis 3. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shall thou go, and dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay? So this statement, that it shall bruise thy head, the seed of the woman, shall bruise the head of the serpent. Okay? And the serpent, in turn, shall bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, we have a number of these models and these types, but one of the most fascinating is, of course, David and Goliath. Goliath, without question, is a type of Satan, the champion of the enemy. How did Goliath die? Remember? A stone pierced his head. There's a dress rehearsal, in a sense, almost, of what was coming. They've been prophesied that the seed of the woman would hurt the head of the serpent. Goliath dies in exactly that way. And of course, Jesus is always pictured as a rock or as a stone throughout Scripture. What happened to the head of Goliath? That may be the strangest question you'll get asked today. What happened to the head of Goliath? Remember David chopped it off? Well, we wouldn't know any more about it if it were not for one really strange verse that we have in 1 Samuel seventeen fifty four, And we're just simply told that David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. What's really strange about this is that at the time, Jerusalem was not belonging to Israel. The Jebusites still lived there. It's not until David later becomes king that they finally take the city of Jerusalem. Now, when was the head taken there? We don't know. But it was seen from the text, from the context here, that this was something that David did straight away. And in all honesty, it makes sense because you're not really going to want a head kind of just you know, in the corner of your tent for you know a few months or a year or two because I'm guessing that thing's going to start smelling after a while. No, no, we're told that David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Why of all places would David do that? I mean this is before Jerusalem has become the capital that we knew we know it to, to be. Well, I believe that he was obeying what the Lord had laid on his heart to do this. Why? To fulfil an incredible type of model. You see, they brought the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and buried it. Where? I believe, place of a skull. Again, Jesus bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, or, better still, Goliath of Gath. Golgotha. Goliath of Garth. This place was the place that the head of the Philistine had been buried. It means that the cross stood directly above where this head was. In Joshua, chapter 10, verse 24, when Joshua defeated the enemy at one point, We read, it came to pass when he brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which were with him, come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. The idea is literally putting their feet upon their heads as an act of declaration of their victory. Symbolic of the fact that they've got complete victory over their enemy. And so, what we see going on at Golgotha, this event that had been foreordained since before the foundation of the world is Jesus with his bruised feet putting them upon, literally upon, the head of the enemy. See, the serpent was to bruise the heel of the seed. That happened. And the seed to bruise the head of the serpent. And an eternal declaration of Christ's victory is bruised feet upon the head of the enemy. That is staggering. And it's just another statement for all eternity that Satan was defeated at Calvary. You see, in getting Jesus crucified, Satan forfeited his own life. We were told back in Genesis chapter 9 that if you kill somebody... You forfeit your own life. Jesus was innocent. Satan had engineered through these circumstances. Of course, God had allowed it. Satan had engineered for Jesus to be killed. And in taking Christ's life, Satan then forfeits his own. And Jesus is in this situation, declaring on the cross, as he's dying, his victory over the enemy, because, of course, that was not the end. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, the King of the Jews. This is the title that Pilate writes at the top of the cross. And it's written. We're told that it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. Everybody could see this. But in Hebrew, interestingly enough, it's just four words. The name Yeshua, the name of Jesus, the name means saviour, salvation. The second word, Hanatzroi, or of Nazareth. The third word, Vemelkah, the king, and Chayudim, of the Jews. That was what was written in Hebrew above the cross. And you remember that the Jewish leadership got really a bit upset about this. And they go to Pilate and they say, Can you take it down? I don't want anyone to see this. Why were they so concerned? Well, because if we look at the first letters, it's an acrostic. We have a Y, an H, a V, and an H in the Hebrew. Yod He Vavhe in the Hebrew. The name of God is the name Yahweh. That was the name that was written on top of the cross. Let's leave it there and we'll pick up the rest of the chapter next week. And to see the, the rest of this play out. But there's enough there just to see God's complete and total control. And once again, as I said, Chuck Mises so often used to say, the cross was not a tragedy, it was a triumph. And it's brought us great freedom, release from sin, forgiveness, as we celebrated early with our communion. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning for a reminder of these things. Lord, a reminder that you... Lord, we're destined to go to that cross for us from before the foundation of the earth. You were the lamb slain. Thank you, Jesus, that you were that lamb that John recognized that had come to pay for our sin. Thank you, Jesus, that just as that model with Abraham and Isaac, you were willing to lay down your life. Father, thank you that we see the model with David and Goliath that a stone, a rock, Jesus Christ has victory over the enemy, putting your bruised feet upon his head, declaring that you have won, that all power is yours in heaven and in earth. And we thank you, Lord, for what you have accomplished because you have wrought our salvation and it can never be taken away from us because you paid for it with your blood, with your life. We just thank you, Jesus, this morning. Lord, give us a renewed confidence in our salvation, in our relationship with you, in the fact that you have cleansed us from sin. And Lord, in our calling to go to this world to declare these truths, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.